and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason intersect, of course. I'm Doug Keck, kind of like the gatekeeper or toll gatekeeper, where it all started with Mother Angelica, of course, the mothership, as Father likes to call it, back in 81. And your questions are really important to this program, so send them to us at spitzersuniverse.com. And check out all of EWTN's uh, websites, but also check out Father Spitzer's websites, especially the Magis Center one and Purposeful Universe and the SpitzerCenter.org. And of course, as always, we mentioned that Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel and our EWTN On Demand page, where you can check out a whole plethora of wonderful programs on demand. Now we've got Doctors Standing Firm, an international pro-life roundtable filmed on location at the annual Rose Dinner in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Four doctors discuss how they promote life in a profession that is increasingly becoming pro-choice, especially under Canadian law. See it now, free and on demand. Did I mention it was free 24-7? Our topic today, the spiritual effects of pornography impacting our society, taken from Father's wonderful book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, available as always through our catalog, as is all his books and recent books. And our book of the month for February, appropriately for this program, is entitled New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God. No, not by Father Spitzer, but by a good friend of ours, a president of our EWTN affiliate in Spain, Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado wonderful new book and we hope to have him on EW10 Live in the coming months and I hope to get a chance to do a bookmark with him. But with that said, that's the future. This is today. We turn to Father Spitzer once again. Great to see you, Father. Good to see you too, Doug. I use the term loosely as always. <laughs> Someday I'll change that intro so you won't have to say that. But no, if you can no, say no, a, don't, no, if no, you can I say love a it. Prayer, I love it. If you could say a prayer, I like to say my joke too. There you go. Okay. In the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us. The blessing, especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now. Doug, myself, our whole audience and staff this day so that everything we do, say, and hear will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, so you're keeping busy as always, jet-setting around the country. Uh, and, of course, uh, we're going through the moral wisdom, but the other book, which we, we also did, that has to do with Scripture. How is that book doing? That's a great book, too, that's put out by our Sunday Visitor Press, uh, OSV, and it's called uh, Science, Reason, and Faith, Discovering the Bible. And I've been doing some webinars on it and a variety of other talks. I'll be, uh, you know, um, speaking uh, in several different venues uh, on that book, trying to bring together science and faith and uh, show how the Bible doesn't disagree at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, they have two different methods with two different objectives. Um, you know, science and, and uh, scripture, uh, uh, very definitively isolated by Pope Pius XII. And uh, when you start looking at those things and uh, Joseph Ratzinger's great uh, distinctions that he makes relative to scripture, uh, by the time you put it together, the Catholic Church has had principles that allow 
uh, the Bible and science to make sense in their own jurisdictions with their own methods, uh, uh, you know, moving toward their own objectives very concretely, very truthfully, and without a, uh, as they say, a conflict in the intersection between faith and reason. There we so go. So it's, um, that's what the book's all about. Boy, that intersection's really getting busy, I have to tell you. It's uh, even busier than it was before, <laughs> especially thanks to you. That's right. Uh, so let's get to some articles before we get to some questions, before we get to the topic. A couple of things, uh, obviously, coming out of uh, kind of our pro-life month and uh, the March for Life and everything. There's a couple mm -hmm. of related stories. Uh, this story uh, from Life News, uh, Biden all okay abortion up to birth at a pro-abortion rally recently. Uh, our present uh, president, who's also a practicing Catholic, uh, says, give me a Democratic House of Representatives, give me a bigger uh, Democratic Senate where we'll pass a new law restoring and protecting Roe v. Wade and I will sign it immediately, he said. On the flip side, he promised to veto any bill that limits abortions, even abortions up to birth. So that's kind of the, uh, the official position there, and it's clearly uh, a major talking point, quite honestly, for, for the upcoming election, on, apparently on the Democratic side. Well, that's right, and uh, I think they're going to be using that uh, uh, full swing. Uh, you know, I, I think um, what we have to just emphasize is uh, that, um, you know, Biden again wants to overrule the states and uh, the states have been given custody over um, this issue uh, thanks to the Dobbs decision. And I think we have to, you know, obviously observe this from the Catholic point of view, from my point of view, from natural laws point of view, and from a medical scientific point of view, I think uh, his position is uh, absolutely not only absurd but immoral mm -hmm. and uh, the reason I, I think so is because today's scientific evidence shows quite conclusively that a human being is substantially whole at the stage of a single-celled zygote. I don't think uh, there's really any question about that anymore at the stage of the single-celled zygote, unicellular zygote as it's called. This is a totipotent cell. Mm -hmm. That totipotent cell is going to be literally the origin of every single cell in that body throughout the rest of that human being's life. It's also going to be the unity of every cell in that human being's body for the rest of his or her life. Now, if that's the case, and the human genome is 100% complete at the stage of a unicellular zygote, single-celled zygote. If that's the case, you got a whole, all the programming in the genome is complete. The totipotent cell, which will be the origin and unity of all the other cells in that body for the rest of your life, that is a substantially whole human being. And because it is, then, you know, um, this is, explains why 96% of international biologists, that was about 5,600 of them, and 68% of uh, biologists, professional biologists in the U.S. say conclusively that a new, unique, um, uh, uh, substantially whole right. human being exists at the moment of fertilization slash conception. So if that's the case, I think we need to pretty much agree it's immoral to kill a new, right. unique, substantially whole human being. That's not my definition. That's the majority of biologists' definition. Right. And all I can say is we have to keep talking about the moral issue, too. 
we can't let you know Biden politics just sweep this off the uh, the proverbial stage right. at the same time of course we have to be very careful uh, about the way in which this thing is going to be politicized and utilized uh, to uh, to try and right. uh, sweep in a, a group of people uh, who are going to be very very uh, pro-abortion. So my point, um, you know, that uh, is clear is, yeah. you know, we have to be as uh, innocent as uh, doves on the moral issue, but we have to be as cunning as serpents mm -hmm. as well. Right, absolutely. Also, in a, in a related story, uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court seeks to impose abortion on demand through nine months, paid by taxpayers. That's also going on. So people should know about that story. Uh, here's one that kind of relates to what I was thinking with the uh, campaigning uh, idea, and I wanted your mm -hmm. feedback on this. And this was actually a story that came out of the New York Times, and it was why Democrats are using personal abortion stories now. Uh, and there's a story that had to do with the case in Texas, with the Texas law. And this particular person, yeah. uh, a woman who was involved, who was suing, Denard, I think was her name, uh, you know, did an ad for the President Biden's re-election campaign in which she describes her diagnosis having to leave Texas and its restrictive abortion law to get an abortion. Because apparently she was diagnosed with anaphylactic uh, pregnancy, a fatal defect where the baby's born without parts mm -hmm. of the brain and skull. For the mother, it can lead to bleeding, preterm labor, and other complications that could threaten future fertility, plus the emotional trauma of carrying a child almost certain to die within hours of birth. I always like how all these things are possible, maybe could be uh, effects. Yeah. But then mm -hmm. this is what I wonder. Texas abortion ban had an exception for life-threatening medical emergencies, but Bernard says she didn't bother trying to right. ask for one, of course. Uh, she wouldn't have a lawsuit yeah. if she, she had asked. Because she said the yeah. risks to her life yeah. weren't acute. I knew I was, wasn't going to get one. I wasn't sick enough. So I think, first of all, you could argue that 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 uh, kind of, uh, I don't know if she was a lawyer, she could figure that out, or a doctor. But also the idea yeah. of, of the, the, these kind of stories about all of these complications and things that many times turn out to, not to be true anyway. Yeah, well, I, I don't know about this particular story, but right. it doesn't sound right. Um, you know, the uh, APLOG, the American Association, of pro-life uh, um, obstetricians and gynecologists, they have put out a whole, you know, a paper, a wonderful paper. It's about 10 pages long. Uh, you can get it free of charge um, right on the uh, uh, internet. Uh, and it, it, it talks about ectopic pregnancies, uh, uh, a variety of other kinds of uh, issues that can come up. And they give a whole set of very prudent guidelines which uh, the, all, you know, the states that um, do have the restrictive abortion laws, all of them have uh, exceptions that can be asked mm -hmm. for, like in Texas, if there clearly is a medical emergency. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the idea of trying to trump this up as a real reason why, I mean, you could do this too on the pro-life side. Okay, look at all the number of deaths and injuries that have been caused by using chemical uh, abortifacients, right? And let's just uh, take all of those stories and p pile them up. I mean, obviously, this is all being rigged for political purposes. The whole idea to do this is to take the moral issue off the stage and, of course, uh, to have the, the federal government come sweeping in again with these mandates, uh, which have been turned back properly over to the states where they should have been from the very beginning. And, uh, and for all intents and purposes, 
um, you know, like I said, the politicization of this moral issue and the, you know, it's, it's truly the way in which this is being done and the ignoring of the inalienable rights of these unique human beings is just uh, mind-boggling. Right. But we saw the very same thing on slavery right before the Civil War, the same mind-boggling right, politicization of the slavery issue. Again and again, we see these things happening. We've seen it uh, happen internationally as well. I don't have to tell you, right. you know, when you see propaganda like this, there's a real desperation right. to try and do something immoral under the guise that it's compassion. Right. I think the same thing with physician-assisted suicide. You've heard me say this. Right. I think today with the p passing of these physician-assisted suicide bills, there are so many people out there being manipulated, so many people mm -hmm. being coerced into committing suicide who really don't want to commit it. Yeah. The relatives going out physician shopping right. until they finally get somebody who will sign off, right. uh, you know, that this person wants to die even though they've protested. Right. I mean, it's, it's going on and on. And, uh, you know, my, my thought is at the present time is, you know, I just think we have to resist right. it. I do think we need to return to the moral issue, but we need to be right. truly innocent uh, as doves right. on the moral issue, but we do need to be somewhat cunning as serpents uh, on the political right. front. And, and uh, just this reality we live in, in a right. politicized society, that cares little about morality, but cares a whole lot about politics. Right, it's interesting too, because I remember us talking uh, probably within the last year or so, and I might have been out of Denmark, but I remember there was a case where uh, a woman was agreeing to euthanasia, and then at some point, you know, said to the daughter, you know, uh, or the daughter asked, well, why do you want to do this? She said, well, I said it to you, and you seemed okay with it, and so I thought you didn't care. And so there was a guilt on both sides, exactly. which is one side, the, the, the mother is yeah. being guilted into being a burden on the kids. On the other side, the, the, yeah. the family, to some degree in this case, was being guilted onto, you shouldn't be holding on to this person if they, if they really want to go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so yeah. it, can, it can work on oh, both no, sides. Oh, no, I mean, there, it's, know? oh, absolutely. And I mean, like I said, the manipulation on the part of, it's not just relatives who are, mean-spirited or want to get an inheritance or get the bother right. out of their lives it's basically also well-meaning people right. who have been manipulated into thinking that their relatives really do want to die and they're the ones mm -hmm. who are keeping them alive when in fact it's contrary to their wishes right. we know for a fact that the last six weeks of life can be very 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 well worth living when people want to impart their faith, their wisdom, mm -hmm. forgiveness, love, to express kinds of uh, their, their love for their, their relatives and, and, and the wisdom that they have in these last uh, weeks of life or months of life uh, that are left to them. Right. And the idea of checking out early as somehow being a good thing for the majority of relatives, it is not. There are some relatives who want their moms and dads to die. Most people don't. Mm -hmm. Most people want them to have a natural death, being loved, 
not being coerced into a death sentence at the will of the people right. who they brought up and loved. I mean, this is, it's so much nonsense. Right. But as I said, that issue's been politicized too. Has so, it, do you know if there's I mean, been any... Uh, the moral issues swept off the stage. Have, have there been any studies on post-euthanasia syndrome, you know, like people no. who were involved with uh, getting it and then seeing how did that actually impact the family or the relatives? Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? When they got the money and realized it wasn't such a big deal and they actually miss mom and dad or feel like they were, uh, you know, part of something that yep. shouldn't have really happened. I just was wondering if that's ever happened. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of anecdotes out there, but yeah. I don't think any, anybody's done uh, an official study yet. Right. But I'm looking for a Priscilla Coleman kind of study mm -hmm. that'll come out eventually. You know, right. that, that one that was done <coughs> for the abortion issue. Right. And that was a good study with, uh, <coughs> excuse me, three quarters of a million people. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, <coughs> at the end of the day, right. that um, is a, a, pretty, a pretty good study. Right. So uh, to, to segue from one of the other stories also, there was a poll done. Uh, Knights of Columbus and Marist did a poll before the March for Life uh, earlier in January. Uh, and they and they talked about uh, aborting babies with Down syndrome, and so they asked people, yeah. and it, it turned out that more than half of Democrats support or strongly support eugenic-style abortions of babies with Down syndrome, based on this poll. Uh, Republicans, 75%, mm -hmm. and independents, 58%, are overwhelmingly against the practice. So, uh, and yeah. we've seen this. I know Denmark, Iceland, I think. Uh, Boasted at one time oh, yeah, they, had they eliminated, eliminated "quote unquote" yeah Down syndrome yeah. by uh, quote killing, unquote, yeah. killing them all ahead of time. It's yeah. Like killing them all. That's right. We got we got rid of all of these people. What'd you do? Oh, we just killed them all. Okay, yeah. that's an interesting yeah. answer to the problem. But, yeah, uh, medical solution. Yeah, right. yeah. I shouldn't laugh because it's so utterly it's tragic. Horrible. But right. that's right. exactly. Oh yeah, no, it's right. eugenics on a on a massive uh, level. And of course, uh, you know, it was almost right. Chinese style where, uh, you know, the uh, eugenic abortion was being forced practically right. uh, on the parents uh, in order to eliminate the, uh, the Down syndrome problem. The wonderful uh, part of Down syndrome kids, of course, is they become the life oftentimes of the family. Absolutely. Uh, they yeah. are, uh, you know, the, the re you know, when I was at Georgetown, like I said, over and over again, so many of the students who were there on the Agape retreats would say, I wouldn't be here at Georgetown were it not for my uh, Down syndrome brother or sister. Mm -hmm. You know, I just learned compassion. I right, learned to, right. to, to see, you know, how fortunate I was. I learned how to serve. I delighted in the, in the goodness of that human being. And I could see that it was not related to their IQ, to their performance in school, to their getting into Georgetown. They were an intrinsically good, delightful, right. transcendent, lovable human being. And they didn't even make it into Harvard. So I mean, uh, right. uh, but they give these right. uh, talks and you could see that they were so moved by their Down syndrome brother and sister. And I mean, I think that happens all the time. Right. People learn service, they learn, right. you, know, uh, you know, to count their blessings. They learn also, uh, you know, how delightful and life-giving and good and innocent and, you know, how happy right. uh, these individuals are. And so it, it really is, I mean, to live uh, and have dinner at a large community is, 
it's really just fantastic. I mean, right. of course, they have their ups and downs like right, everybody exactly. else. It's, uh, but at the same time, listen, yeah. it's 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 very difficult on the family. Yeah. It's a lot yeah. of work. These people are heroic parents. No one's going to take any out of the way. But any of those yeah. people will tell you yeah. that the rewards from from having that child at the same time is, is, is you know unbelievable. And, and like you said, you yep, learned so absolutely. much about the idea that the things you thought were important really aren't very important. Uh, they are totally <laughs> ephemeral, exactly. and they come and they go, and no one yeah. cares. But that yeah, that exactly. insight, that uh, closeness to God, you see in children like that. Here's another story: uh, mm -hmm. patriarchy's new way to squash women's happiness. Uh, uh, this is at least a commentary on a on a story that was uh, run in the New Yorker that said, "How did?" polyamory become so popular. Uh, and it's a story about how a polyamorous mom had a great adventures and found herself. But the point, uh, you know, is a follow-up kind of kind of where we are with this, uh, the end of uh, monogamism or, you know, uh, and what's going out there with all of these things, same-sex relationships, etc. Uh, this person who wrote this article talking about it said a third of singles have been in non-monogamous relationships according to a 2023 survey of American singles by some match company. Just half of singles, 49%, picked monogamy as their ideal sexual relationship structure. Perusing dating apps, I've seen many men saying they're in open relationships and looking for another. A third of Americans, including an astonishing 51% of 18 to 29-year-olds, say that an open marriage is quote-unquote acceptable according to Pew Research 2023. I mean, I like music from the 60s, but I really don't want to go back to the morality of the 60s. I, didn't we go through all this and found that none of this works? Yeah. Well, we sure did. And just, I mean, if you look at some very good CDC studies, uh, first of all, you know, that right now about 53% of the marriages um, that take place are monogamous. So uh, maybe among younger people that statistic is reduced. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't seen a breakdown uh, generationally and it wouldn't surprise me if it is reduced. But at the same time, I do know three things about polyamory, just like I know them about having number of, uh, of um, uh, you know, a premarital relationships. Number one, the more the promiscuity you have, the more the depression level goes up. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, you may think, I'm really happy while I'm having this polyamorous relationship, mm -hmm. but something's happening to you. It's like pornography viewing. The more you view it, the, the higher the depression rate, according to uh, several uh, different uh, uh, scales of depression. So you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? You know, why would people get depressed if they seem to be happier at the moment that they're having the polyamorous relationship or watching the pornography? And I think it's really two reasons. First of all, their own self-image is being crushed underneath. Mm -hmm. The second is we know that religion goes right out the window. So whatever kind of belief in God, whatever sense of the transcendent you have, whatever religious practice you have, whatever practice of prayer you have, it starts, you know, the more you start living the promiscuous lifestyle, the more you uh, kind of view the pornography, the huge University of Oklahoma study shows it just goes right down the drain. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, what, what's uh, uh, so important about religion? Uh, just look at those studies from the American Psychiatric Association. Religiously affiliated people 
have significantly higher rates of emotional health, relational health, spiritual health, and marital health. Significantly higher. We're talking doubling and tripling. Non-religiously affiliated people have significantly higher rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, familial tensions, suicides, and suicidal ideation. I'm, what I'm saying is you lose your religion, you're going to lose your emotional health, you're also going to lose your spiritual health. You start doing these promiscuous things and, you know, looking at the pornography, whatever. The more you start doing these things, just expect. You can say, oh, I'm really happy today. But all of a sudden, why am I so dogged down? Why do I feel a, a malaise and an emptiness in my life? Why is it that I feel profoundly lonely in the cosmos? Why don't I have any anchors for my meaning in life? Hmm, let me see. I don't have any religion left. I don't have any connection to God or the transcendent. I don't have any sense of dignity within myself because of course you think I I still have my sense of dignity but your subconscious is too smart for that mm -hmm. it already knows you're a low life and is brandishing you not just the guilt of conscience it's your own subconscious turning back on you and just going look at yourself You've degenerated into a hedonist, no matter how you try to rationalize it and say you're just as dignified and honorable as you ever were, you know the truth. And of course, don't think that the evil spirit right, right. will not rush into the vacuum and certainly say the same thing about, you know, I mean, once he's got you over the barrel, once you're addicted to the promiscuity, once you're addicted to the pornography, then he's going to pummel you. You, he's going to turn into the accuser, and he's just going to say, you little wretch. You don't, of course God doesn't care about you. In fact, nobody does. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows you're just a head. Everybody knows <clears throat> you're just a hedonist. So, I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the person in, involved is going right. to you know, turn back and is going to be utterly crushed. And, of course, it'll come out not in the sense of saying that to yourself. It'll come out in the sense of malaise, loneliness, emptiness, a kind of a, uh, you know, a ground, ungroundedness and unmooredness uh, in your life. But the emotional state is, you know, tantamount to inducing depression and anxiety. So there it is, you know, on the, That's right. on, um, you know, a, a, a kind of a profound level. Yeah. Right, absolutely, and it uh, was a disaster the, la the last time they ran through this. Let's get to some of your questions then uh, for Father sure. Spitzer. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, on a recent mm -hmm. program, I believe I heard you say that people don't always leave this world upon death. They tie themselves to a place or do not depart. They can then be seen as ghosts. This is the first time I've ever heard a priest mm -hmm. say that. Can you elaborate? You said you believe it because there have been so many reported sightings, and this is Mary. Yeah, Mary, I don't think there's anything in church doctrine that says yay or nay, um, you know, to that. And, um, you know, I do think uh, at the end of the day, there are people who seem to, well, hang around, and God seems to let them hang around. Um, and I do know that oftentimes people who pray for, so if you live in a haunted house and you see the specter of that person or they make themselves known to you by, you know, doing various kinds of things, uh, uh, well, not just at night, but during the day as well. And uh, you, you st if you start praying for that person and, you know, you, uh, you just ask that person to just, you know, it's time for you to go to God. It's 
time for you to go to the beyond. You, you, you should be going now and you pray for that person. Oftentimes uh, the specter will leave. Mm -hmm. So I'll just leave it at that and say, um, um, you know, uh, again, I don't base it on any kind of a Catholic teaching. I, I just base it on, gosh, there are you know, tens of thousands of reports of these kinds of things. So, Well, let you know, me ask um, you, uh, yeah. was, was it your, your grandmother's on your father's side? There was some relative of yours who had a house mm -hmm. that I thought on the third level of the house or something that was a quote-unquote yeah. haunting. Wasn't there something like that? Yeah, how did you know that? I remember you telling that story. Did I tell you that? Yeah, yeah, you did, right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh yeah. No, that's right. On the third level, there definitely was, and people would actually see uh, the elderly lady. It wasn't my grandmother or anything. Mm. Just see this elderly lady looking out the window of the third floor. Mm -hmm. And, of course, um, you know, my brother and I, you know, my my grandmother always used to tell us, my grandfather had, was deceased, and we'd go over to visit gra grandmother, and of course, uh, we always wanted, since the third floor was off limits, <laughs> and she said, don't ever go onto that third floor. So of course, that meant, when grandma's not looking, <laughs> let's go onto the third floor. So my brother and I would, would uh, go up there, and of course, it was completely unfurnished. It, it was, there was nothing up there uh, except dust. And, uh, but, you know, it's just a curiosity uh, of it. And uh, we always felt like there was something up mm -hmm. there. Uh, but, you know, you, you couldn't be absolutely sure. But people absolutely said, yeah, they could see an elderly lady looking from that third floor window uh, out, you know, uh, onto the Vancouver Street side of, uh, of my, um, my uh, grandparents' old house, yeah. Now, was that a house that somebody else had lived in before your grandparents did? Was it an oh, yeah. Or was oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a big magnate who, who lived there, but uh, something happened, and I think uh, uh, he was maybe put in jail or something, but uh, I don't know what happened to mm -hmm. his wife and his family, but uh, I think he had been put in jail or something, and my grandfather actually wound up buying the house, mm -hmm. uh, you know, independently, not from right. the person or the family. It was just on the market. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. With that being said, we are going yeah. to take a break with Father Spitzer and right. his universe. <laughs> and we've got more of your questions right ahead. Stay with us. Thank you so much for staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. Our topic is Spiritual Effects of Pornography, taken from Father's wonderful book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. And I want to remind you at this time, the National Eucharistic Revival is coming up later this year, July 17th to the 21st. It'll be upon us before we know. Indianapolis, Indiana, celebrate the power of the Eucharist with all of us. Go to ew10.com forward slash Eucharist to see how you can register at a discounted rate through EWTN. And I got to give you just a tease. If you get to go there, you get to see Father Spitzer in person because he's going to be speaking at that event. Just one of many of the headliners there. Uh, so uh, people can look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. So speaking about popularity contests, here's a question. Here's a letter to us. <laughs> Dear Father Spitzer and Mr. Right. Keck. Uh-oh, it must be trouble. I've always loved programming featuring Father Spitzer, but I'm disappointed with both of your responses to Pope Francis' opinion on the hope that hell is empty. I agree with both of you. I'm assuming she agrees that there are people in hell. However, I interpreted your verbal and facial expressions as mocking our Holy Father, the Vicar of Christ on earth. 
I'll go to say if we did do that, it was not intentional, and uh, I apologize. I'm sure if anybody was making mm -hmm. faces, it was probably me. Uh, I've been making faces since I was six years old. So my understanding of catechism at the, is this is a sin against the first commandment. I hope I'm incorrect. Thank you for your time and attention. I sincerely appreciate your work. And this is Janie. So Janie agrees with us that she probably tends to think that there are souls in, in hell, uh, contrary to the opinion of the Pope, but that uh, we, we weren't as respectful of his opinion as maybe we should have. And so I'm happy to say if we, we weren't, we apologize for that. But it was, certainly was not our well, intention. And my apology, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. I, I certainly wasn't uh, attempting to uh, mock him. I just, yeah. uh, I, you know, I, the church doesn't teach one way or another right. whether hell is full or hell is empty or somewhere in between. Right. Uh, what I um, uh, just wanted to say is, in my own view, uh, there is uh, certainly, uh, uh, that's not my hope. I don't want anybody to be in hell, right. but I certainly uh, think that there is a possibility that there, right. there may be some people there who just don't want to be right. uh, in heaven and don't want to be anywhere near uh, God and um, who have that right. view of Milton, uh, you know, in uh, Paradise Lost, you know, where the devil is basically saying, non servium, right. you know, I'm not going to, uh, you know, serve uh, for one second. Um, you know, and uh, so you get the right. point. But no, I wasn't trying to be right. deliberately and, mocking and, at and all. And it's Im important that the Holy Father himself indicated this was his personal opinion. Um, the only, and, yeah. and has nothing to do and with it was church his hope. teaching. Right. Yeah. Uh, kind of yeah. a thing. But his you know, hope is my hope. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's yeah. like uh, one time I asked you as a professor, and a you may hope everybody who's taking the final will pass it with yeah. 100%. Now, yeah. the likelihood that that's right. actually what's going to happen exactly. is probably not realistic, but certainly one can yeah, hope that. Right. And so, yeah, nobody yeah. wants anybody to be in hell. But that being said, the likelihood that there are people there, even based on scripture, is probably there are. And I went to uh, an article mm -hmm. that Asi Prinza put out um, uh, a while ago, but from the Catholic News Agency, so related to EW10. In the history of Catholic Church, various uh -huh. saints and blessings have described what hell is like, even exactly where bad Christians go, including St. Teresa of Avila, who had a, a, a vision, St. Uh, Faustina Kowalska, against this mm -hmm. private revelation, this was not official church teaching, but these yeah. are important mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. in the church who are, who are who's saying this is what they experienced, not what they hoped they experienced, but actually what they actually experienced in some mm -hmm. way. Faustina talks about caverns, torture mm -hmm. pits. Uh, this one was really interesting to, to go on to what you were saying. St. Catherine of Siena, a doctor of the church and work called The Dialogue, narrates the eternal fall that indicated to her the four main torments of hell from which all pain are derived. The first uh, is, uh, according to, the, to God, to her, First torment is condemned souls are deprived of him. The agony activates the second torment, yep. which is the pain of the worm of conscience, because they're aware of their own faults now. The third torment mm -hmm. is the vision of demons, because they see themselves better now, reflected in the demons, who they themselves mm -hmm. actually are. And the fourth torment is fire that doesn't consume. Uh, and it also it, it, it impacts these people, and the suffering is depending on the variety of the sins and the severity of the guilt. And of course, all of us who pray the rosary, almost all of us uh, pray the Fatima prayer, which, uh, you know, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to mercy, mm -hmm. which obviously, and, and Jacinta, mm -hmm. uh, when she was very ill, shared 
the fact that, according to her, uh, the impression she had from Our Lady was that the sins which cause most souls to go to hell are the sins of the flesh, just as reference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, as you said, they're private revelations, but I think there's so many of them, uh, uh, there's probably a pretty good uh, reason to believe that. Mm -hmm. And as I've always said, God doesn't have to send anybody to hell, mm -hmm. and God doesn't have to invent any torments in hell. The demons invent enough torments for uh, one another down there all by themselves, <laughs> and we choose hell. We absolutely get seduced into it. We believe that's where we will really be happy. But let's face facts. If you want to go to a place where people really don't want to love one another, where they really don't want to follow the teaching of Jesus, where they really don't want God, who after all is not just our creator, but our loving creator who is all good and all loving himself. If you don't want to be around him and you want to be around instead people who kind of love domination, egocentricity, narcissism, and sensuality, uh, you know, monitor, you know, kind of, you know, sort of tailored through mm -hmm. this uh, narcissism and domination. Well, you know, you can experience a lot of emptiness and pain, uh, you know, just in that ambiance and just being around it, just even having a, you know, a sense mm -hmm. of a demon's presence already brings emptiness and alienation in its wake. So I, I assure you, uh, this, uh, I think, is very real, but God doesn't have to create a single torment, doesn't have to send mm -hmm. a single person down there. We choose it, and the demons do the tormenting just very well all by themselves. It's right. kind of their expertise. Right. Uh, okay, another question before we get to the topic. Dear Father Spitzer, the latest Pew survey states that nuns, and that's N-O-N-E-S, are the largest yeah. religious group at 28% with Catholics second at 20%. Mm -hmm. So they're viewing them that as a group. Right. This is alarming because according, according to Pew, nuns are also less likely to vote, do volunteer work, or have strong friend groups or community. Gee, what a surprise. Is there hope in reversing this trend or should we accept it given that Christ himself asked, will the Son of Man find faith on earth when he returns? Jan. Well, Jan, I think, of course, we have to do everything in our power to reverse the trend. Right. Uh, I was just t a few minutes ago on this program just uh, talking about those statistics when we're talking about a non-religiously affiliated people having double and triple the rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, familial tensions, and suicides and suicidal contemplation. Now, if you're looking at that, I mean, we got to do this. And is this, you know, we can see in our young people, right? Uh, I, I mean, just go back. Um, you know, this is even before COVID started, we mm -hmm. already had nearly a 70% increase in depression, anxiety, et cetera. After COVID, you could just probably make it very close to a, a, about 150%, 160% uh, increase. Now, today, mm -hmm. almost a doubling. Uh, you know, over the course of about 22 years uh, in our young people's depression rates, anxiety rates, suicide rates, and about a 24% increase in the homicide rates. Great, great. 
Uh, you know, something terrible is happening to the mm -hmm. nuns. Something terrible is happening to our young people. It's very measurable. You can say, well, that's not all religion. No, but when religion's gone, then ego comparative happiness goes way up. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power, less power? Who's more popular? Who's less popular? Who's, who's more intelligent? Who's less intelligent? Whatever you do, you start getting into that ego comparative game, and our young people do, and is now exacerbated big mm -hmm. time because of the uh, uh, Instagram, Facebook, social media, et cetera. Because of all of these factors, we can see, of course, you, you, you know, a decline in religion, mm -hmm. You know, that always is followed up by an increase in ego comparative identity because that's all that's left for them in a sense. The only thing they have to latch on to. You put the two things together, it's just a monstrous backslide, mm -hmm. uh, you know, into depression, anxiety, et cetera. And, and as I said, the statistics clearly show, uh, you know, practically speaking. I mean, right now the, the young women are uh, feeling it a little bit more than right. uh, the young men, but still uh, the rates overall, uh, overall are appalling. I mean, gosh, you know, uh, you know, even if men are only 160 percent and what, you know, uh, women are, you know, 185 or something, what percent increase, you know, over 20 year period. What are we talking about? You know, mm. it's horrible. And even right. though COVID had something to do with it, COVID is building on a foundation and the foundation is groundlessness, a foundation of non-eternity, a foundation mm. of no absolute dignity, a foundation of no anchoring or mooring of one identity, a foundation that there is no ultimate identity uh, for a person. All, all there is is, you know, my social media platform and, you know, which identity group I belong to. It's not enough. It'll never be enough because we are seekers by our very nature for perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home. We are seekers by nature. We need a relationship with God. We're so radically incomplete with that. Being in relationship with God is almost heartbreaking to see what's happening to these young people. They don't know what the consequences are. They don't know what's happening, and the, the culture is giving them this sense of false security. You're going to be yourself. You're just going to be you. You're not going to be beholden to anybody. You don't need any morality. You don't need any authority mm -hmm. figures. You are free, and you are you. Well, at the end right. of the day, you are you is going to be a really depressed, anxious, substance-abusing, familial tensioned, uh, suicidal, and, uh, you know, depressed uh, individual. And all I can tell you is that's not good. And, we, we, you know, as I said, if you read that book, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, every study is there. You could just look it up for yourself. You know, practically speaking, if you get the digital copy of the book, all you got to do is click on the the studies, uh, most of them are now available on the internet. The whole archives of general psychiatry, you can get half those studies by a click. So I, I'm just right. begging you to look at them. You can see I'm not just, you know, uh, being, uh, you know, a, a priest uh, or a religious who's, who's just, uh, you know, scattering up my propaganda. I'm really trying to ground this in a thoroughly excellent uh, social, uh, right. uh, 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 secular studies that are done uh, you know, especially in countries like the Netherlands or like Sweden, where you can see that um, uh, there's an acceptance of the people who, um, right. you know, Those could are secular societies to begin with. Yeah. So, uh, exactly. you know, uh, so you can't yep. use the religious bogeyman as the reason why this, yep. this is happening. Let's jump to uh, yep. uh, true and false promises of happiness and freedom. You talk about the self-fulfilling uh -huh. prophecy, the idea that, uh, to tie into what you were just saying, 
Our perceptions alone can create an individual and collective decline in morality. We can sink as low as we believe the mainstream to be. And that, of course, is what we're seeing, especially with social media, where people are believing the kind of baloney that's being put out there. And, we're, and if you pay attention, more and more of these people and these influencers or whatever they want to call themselves turn out to not be true, not be real, not to be living the life they claim to be living, etc. And all these people are sitting there feeling depressed and uh, thinking there's some great thing out there that they're not living up to. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, as I've said, with the social norming, the problem is it's all based on perception. Right. So if you can get an influencer to say, hey, you know, most people are polyamorous. Uh, so, you, you know, if that influencer has enough influence, you start to say, well, I'm not polyamorous. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I have a ways to go before I cross the moral threshold. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, what's the moral threshold? It doesn't come from an objective moral source. It doesn't come from your conscience, and it doesn't come from a religious source. So if it, what's it coming from? My perception of what the mainstream is. So if my perception of the mainstream is uh, basically that everybody's polyamorous out there, I think that, well, that's free for me to go ahead and do it. I add myself to the statistics of uh, uh, polyamory, and then at the, at the end of the day, I become, as I said, mm -hmm. much more depressed, much more anxious, and of course, uh, in the end, uh, substance abusing, suicidal, etc. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, let's face facts. This is not a healthy lifestyle. It's not healthy for our emotional life. It's not healthy for, our sp definitely for our spiritual right. life. And the two are tied together. Emotional health and religious health and, and re uh, spiritual health are tied together. The, you know, and, and the same thing with marriage. Uh, good marriage and religion are tied together. The couple that prays together stays together. The couple that is praying uh, is going to have a very health, a much healthier emotional life. Uh, you know, and without the depressions, anxieties, the lack of hope, meaninglessness, and unmoredness that we were talking about earlier. So, for all intents and purposes, um, you know, it's pretty clear that social norming is not just a you know a, a minefield and you know a cavernous hole in the ground uh, for people's moral lives. It's a minefield and a cavernous hole in the ground for their emotional lives, their religious lives, and at the end of right. the day, their relational lives. It's yes. going to be a, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing, but that's what's left of morality in right. our culture. Yeah, it should be called uh, social yeah. deforming because it's deforming the culture and yeah. people's lives. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? yeah. So, and yeah, as you say, exactly. and you quote here the Oxford academic uh, study that, that backs up all the thing, uh, Perry and Hayward, uh, and the impact. Yeah. Uh, uh, on the uh, on depression anxiety as you mentioned and you also say and, and this would seem in some ways self-evident but some, the best way to deal with a, a pervasive problem of pornography is to resist it at the outset thus the self-destructive sin is like a snowball moving down a mountain and and that's the case with many of these mm -hmm. things people think they can dabble they think they can control it and they can some people maybe can yeah. start and get out quick but why take the risk? Yeah. Why take the risk? Exactly. Because, again, the statistics reveal uh, that if you get started and you don't have the discipline to stop, it's almost a certainty that you're going to become habituated, say, to pornography. And if you, you know, from habituation to addiction is a pretty short leap. 
So, I mean, uh, uh, you know, if you, you've got to stop as soon as you can. Otherwise, you know, getting off of it once you've started the habit is really, really hard. But there, it can be done. If somebody wants to get out of it, there are groups that can help. There are definitely things you can install on your computer that mm -hmm. will help. You can start getting into accountability groups that will help. And of course, prayer does help mm -hmm. because as you pray more and more and you begin to fall in love more and more with God, um, you know, it, it, it really gives you that distance where you can get, you know, a hold of the addiction um, before it gets a hold of you mm -hmm. um, uh, even more. And the problem though is, it's so hard to pray when you are addicted, I mean, to uh, pornography. It's just like right. prayer is so hard. It's like an uphill battle as long as it's there. So you kind of have to do both in concert. You, you really have right. to try to break yourself the addiction and try to increase, uh, you know, your, your prayer life. And there are some things, uh, some really uh, some good advice, some uh, good materials that are on the internet from right. uh, good Catholic uh, people uh, where they actually give some advice on how do you start a, a prayer life when you're right. into the addiction and the prayer life is such an uphill struggle and of course group prayer is really key hmm. if you're just having trouble get into an adoration group get into a rosary group, get into any kind of a group yeah. because trying to start a prayer life outside that group when you've got an addiction to pornography is, like I said, it's not just an uphill struggle. It's just almost impossible. But if you're with that group, you know, you're going to conform to what's going on in the group. That's going to provide the motivation. And then once you're kind of over the hump with the group saying the rosary, things start leaking in and that, you know, desire to connect with God starts leaking in. That's family prayer is good too. So maybe you can't right. get to an adoration group or something or you don't want to leave your family, but praying in the family and just saying, hey, let's do a, a rosary every other evening or something mm -hmm. with the family right. is a really good method because then the group uh, really right. helps to get the prayer going. But when the two things are going, active resistance steps and the mm -hmm. prayer life is getting deeper through the group. That's what right. can really work. <clears throat> like and credit, as we talked earlier when we were talking about children with Down syndrome, my son, who's a high-functioning autistic, is the leader of the prayer mm -hmm. vigils in our house, uh, including the rosary every night and the readings. So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and if it wasn't for my he pal, Mr. Forget. Matt, uh, yeah, he's like a clock. Yeah. Uh, you know, we got to yeah. get this done here. So, you know, it's very helpful. Uh, and it's who also, doesn't love Mr. Matt? Right. Yeah. And so it's just kind of the idea also, I was thinking about the idea of that group and that group dynamics, which we see elsewhere in 12-step in programs and other places where yeah. you need a support system, which is also why the church is a church as a community. And though it's good to have a, yeah. we need to have our personal relationship with our Lord, but it doesn't stop there. It starts there. Exactly. Right. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the method is uh, try to, um, uh, you know, um, get in contact with people who really have uh, a sense of those values. And the family's right. a great place. And having a Mr. Matt's always great because, <laughs> right. as you say, he's like the clock. He's not going to forget. It's in, <laughs> ingrained into him and he's, he's following through. And the same thing holds true, too. Um, you know, for uh, if you can get a, 
uh, a group that will meet, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe on a Sunday or a Saturday mm -hmm. to get some outside uh, help too, um, you know, on a weekend when you're free from work and you have a little space and time uh, uh, to do that. Right. Uh, cultural consequences, we've talked about this before, shown above and throughout this. Yep. Pornography is not a private harmless predilection deemed immoral by prudish church, mm -hmm. but a significant danger to the emotional health, spiritual well-being, development of adults and children, and, and you know, so directly, really, society, ultimately. You say, a culture is constituted uh -huh. by implicit and explicit general acceptance of certain principles, ideals, and values, bracket, as well as the general rejection of certain vices disvalues and decadent trends. Part of the problem we have today is mm -hmm. whose values are the values yeah. anymore? Well, as a, well, see, it, honestly, just even 30 years ago, of course, religion had a huge, and there was a common religious interest, mm -hmm. right? So uh, basically you had uh, a culture that had religious values. Even though we didn't have the mm -hmm. same religion, you know, uh, thou shalt not, you know, lie, steal, uh, lie, cheat, steal, uh, kill, etc., uh, commit adultery. These things were kind of on people's minds. They, they, they basically believed in those tenets in, in, in themselves uh, as a part of their religion, but also as a part of their own internal moral compass. Mm -hmm. Well, today, without that kind of constitution of the culture by individual people who really have that belief system, What's left, as we just talked about, is social norming. And that's not enough, because social norming just keeps ramping its way up uh, toward the uh, what used to be called the immoral without restraint, because the only thing that restrains them is, where's the mainstream? Mm -hmm. uh, am I exceeding it? If not, I've got room to grow, quote unquote, scare quotes, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, uh, pretty clear uh, that, um, uh, you know, it's a, a real bad trend for the culture. A culture used to be a very, very good, significant, impacting force for our morality, an impacting force for right conduct within civil society. Today, the culture being so weak, so utterly weak from a moral point of view, mm -hmm. an ideals point of view, uh, you can see, um, you know, not only why religion is declining, but morality is declining along with it. Uh, people just don't have that, that reinforcement. And that's why, you know, these depression rates and anxiety mm -hmm. rates, they're just g growing out of control because there's no way for mm -hmm. people to get some outside force to stop them. They need a 12-step group, but if they have a religion, of course getting into prayer groups uh, through their church right. is super important. And if they have a religious family, of course, praying in the evenings with their family, whether it's a rosary or a half a rosary right. or some other prayers that they do or reading the Magnificat together, right. whatever the case is, all of those things are super important because it creates contact with the Lord. And once contact with the mm -hmm. Lord is created, uh, it really reinforces us. It really gives us a way of sort of detaching. You begin to you feel the right. darkness of what you're doing, you know, um, in that prayer life. It gives you that motivation. Like, I don't want to feel this darkness. Right. I don't want to feel this emptiness. I want to be with God. I want to be in the light. I want, uh, you know, the, the malaise to stop. I, right. I, you know, the dread to stop. I just, just, I want to be with God. And doing that 
you know, really makes a Absolutely. huge difference. Absolutely. Well said. As always, Father, a perfect conclusion to this week's program. If you'll send us <laughs> off with your blessing, that'd be great. Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all light, of all consolation, of all goodness and all love, may the Lord who just reinforces us and fills us with his goodness and love, may he bless you and come into your life through the practice of your uh, morality, through the practice of your faith, through the family life and through your prayer life and all the ways of the sacramental life that he has left for us on this earth so that together we may inherit the fullness of that kingdom of joy and consolation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next time. And of course, Father's books and DVDs are always available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. Check those out. Next week, we'll be answering viewer questions, catching up on the old mailbag. This week on Bookmark, Lessons from the School of Love, a wonderful couple, Peter and Deborah Herbeck. And coming up, for the sake of the gospel, Georgia Martyrs, true story of Franciscan missionaries who came to America in the late 1500s to evangelize along the southern Georgia coast where they gave up their lives for the faith. Little known story, Monday, February 5th, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, only on EWTN. I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next time right here in Father Spitzer's Universe. Be well.